uh, thanks for joining us today for our latest Pediatric Insights. These are conversations that the Child Health Advisory Council and career physician have with uh, some regularity. My name is Bob Sawin, and I'm joined today by colleagues, uh, all of whom have a significant history and leadership in academic pediatric medicine. Uh, council members who are uh, present today include uh, Craig Hillemeyer, uh, Danielle LaRocca-Arena, Valerie Opapari, Bruder Stapleton, Arnie Strauss, and Wesley Millicum, who he and his team from Career Physicians are joining us as well. We've had conversations with, about a lot of the leadership challenges and competencies, and one of those that frequently comes up is the question of, of finances. Uh, obviously, as leaders in, in academic medicine, uh, we face the challenge of, of, in pediatrics in specific, fairly low reimbursement rates, particularly for uh, professional fees from uh, Medicaid and other government payers. We have quite uh, disparate revenue and compensation models across many of the disciplines. Uh, we have competing priorities that academic physicians face between teaching and scholarship, which may or may not be associated with uh, any sort of revenue, uh, quality improvement activities, and of course, uh, the clinical uh, services. And then, of course, now in the in the 2023, the fiscal constraints that most all of our institutions are facing. Uh, these are institutions that historically academic pediatric medicine sometimes relied on for subsidization and support, and those institutions themselves are now increasingly uh, burdened. So this is a, a big issue for us as leaders in in pediatric medicine. I, I wanted to talk today about. Uh, the importance of leaders in academic pediatrics uh, having some measure of expertise in fiscal issues and, and how to lead those in your department who might be struggling with some of these fiscal issues. So, you know, one of the questions that always comes up, we've had conversations in the past about the importance of the administrator and the collaboration between the department chair and uh, his or her uh, administrator. And obviously their fiscal uh, expertise is really important, but I wondered whether uh, some of you as, as former chairs could comment on whether or not it's important for other leaders in your department, say your division chiefs, to have competency or expertise in some of the fiscal issues like funds flow or finances of research and, and how you go about making sure that if they don't have that competency, they can gain that competency. You know, I think it's critical that every faculty member and definitely every leader has some basic understanding in the funds flow. It's hard to ask people to help you to find revenue when they don't understand how things are paid for and funded. The single most important source of revenue for any department, any medical school is a clinical revenue. The educational mission, the research mission do not self-fund themselves they have to be cross-subsidized by the clinical revenue. Helping individuals to understand those funds flows and those relationships to me is, is a critical part of being a member of that community. They don't have to have it down to you know, a capacity perhaps at an individual level to read every PL statement, but I think it's really important to help individuals to understand. So as a chair, you know, we made it a point every year to discuss the financials of the department 
And we made it a point each year to remind individuals as we discussed those financials, what was changing in the funds flow? You know, was the dean's tax changing? Was the provost tax changing? If so, why was it changing? If the department had made a commitment to the institution to help with building um, a facility or a building, you know, why did we make that commitment? What was the benefit to us? If people don't understand why the funds are flowing in a different way, they, they begin to not trust you. And trust is an incredibly important. I mean, we had another session, as you remember, talking about culture. A big part of culture is a trust that your leadership is working with you and for you, and that you have an understanding of where things are going. And of course, the money is the most important driver of, of your ability to build programs and your ability to invest in people. And so helping everybody understand that I think is critical. So I think, you know, that's one example at the faculty level, but, you know, we made it a point every year to go by division to each division and go through the PL of the division with the faculty within that division and the staff. And again, it gave them a chance to understand how their PL fit into the bigger PL of the department. Because again, you know, a department of pediatrics, like a department of medicine, they have divisions where there is very little ability to grow revenue. So office-based, EM-based divisions that don't have procedural um, revenue, uh, that don't share in potentially a hospital transfer because of the inpatient volumes or the surgical volumes or the cath lab volumes they need to feel valued and understand. And those that do have that excess revenue have to understand why their revenue is in fact shared to make it possible for them to do the work they do. So it's complicated, but you know, the bottom line to your question is, I think it's critical that you are open and honest and build the trust that people need to have and how the funds flow to the department, to the division, and within the department from division to division. I agree, of course, entirely with Valerie. You know, I think understanding finances is usually one of the areas that most young or mid-career uh, physicians have not had a lot of experience with uh, as they come into leadership roles. And so I think it's really critical when we ask uh, our colleagues or recruit a colleague to be a division chief that we spend some time you know, with them and, and our administrator, understanding all of the division-based finances, but also, as Valerie said, the, the finances for uh, the department, and then to provide them that support. And we, first of all, most of us have uh, clinical vice chairs. We developed a process with uh, our great departmental administrator where she, the division director, clinical uh, vice chair for uh, clinical affairs and the division chief uh, met quarterly just to see how things were going. One of the real, if there's problems in the finances and division waiting until the <laughs> end of the year, uh, it's crippling. And uh, all those points that Valerie has said uh, are absolutely true. I, people, they don't want to spend a lot of time, the average faculty person understanding the details, but they want to, they want to know why they're getting, if they're getting paid or if there's problems with the pay or their benefits. And uh, the division chief needs to be in a position to help them understand that. The last thing I'll say before we go on to other questions uh, and areas is that it's important to be open about the central expenses so that 
everyone understands how you as chair or uh, everyone thinks the chair has some big pot of money and that they're sort of wheeling and dealing with it and and of course we all know that's not the case and and i even formed during one of the big recessions as a chair a, a a clinical finance committee of chairs and faculty. And I opened our books entirely to them and asked them advice that during this tough fiscal time, if we wanted to invest in something, did they approve it? And so I think that really helps the trust of the division chiefs and the faculty if you are very transparent about how the central office is spending. Uh, and I always felt like any revenues we had from clinical finance was their money, being very careful and transparent how we spend it so you know uh, valerie mentioned that there's a, a a wide difference between different specialties within pediatrics even within my own realm of, of surgery they're uh, quite different uh, revenue generation between surgical specialties one of the questions that always comes up is um, uh, productivity and how to how to measure it and i wondered if anyone had any thoughts about the importance of measuring clinical productivity for an individual or for a division um, or are there other measures besides RVUs that we should be looking at? The key point is that there are data. So there are data for pediatric subspecialties. There are subspecialty specific. Um, they do take into account the benefits of some divisions that have uh, procedural income. And those data are critical for everyone to understand because that's uh, what uh, budgets and salaries are based upon. And yes, I think measuring productivity in relationship to RVUs or other measures such as numbers of visits and uh, the numbers or numbers of procedures is very helpful in setting the stage so that everybody understands how much they're contributing or how much they're being subsidized. That I always found helpful. And I found that when that was done, people appreciated their position. The chiefs of neonatology, for example, always understood that a substantial amount of their revenue was going to be distributed because it was much easier to generate. Second point I want to make is that if, if people understand where the revenue comes from, they can help deal with it, especially division directors. So if they understand that most of the revenue for their division, for example, comes from E&M codes, they will pay attention to E&M codes. And again, there are standards. What are the levels of coding for subspecialties and why? And so I always found that people were undercoding because they thought they were helping the families, which is nonsense, of course, and that they could easily increase revenue uh, by adjusting coding to the appropriate data standards and making sure that their notes fulfill the criteria for, the, uh, for those codes. Third point is that there are other ways besides E&Ms and visits to increase revenue. Uh, so laboratory revenue, for example, specialty laboratories, imaging laboratories, generates huge amounts of revenue that can again then be used to subsidize the activities of those who are mostly seeing outpatients. So understanding, as Valerie said, understanding the sources of revenue and how to alter those sources is critical uh, for division directors to understand. Assuming that we're measuring productivity in some uh, transparent way, uh, what, what are the benefits, uh, you know, what advantages are there to faculty? Uh, should they be divisionally based uh, productivity incentives? Should they be individually based? Uh, is it usually in the form of 
you know, fiscal, uh, you know, individual salary increases, or or should they maybe be uh, increases in academic support? I think it actually varies a lot um, in terms of, but I think some of the important points about making sure that people understand their productivity is the transparency that you have around it. Um, as people pointed, have pointed out, whether or not you're using RVUs, clinic visits, whatever, laboratory procedures, whatever, they need to understand what the expectations are. They need to understand how their performance is going to be evaluated. At the end of the day, if they don't have that knowledge, you're not going to have a successful program. In terms of incentives, it's pretty much the same thing. They need to understand how those incentives are going to be calculated, and they need to be what I would say simple enough that they can't be so complicated that they really don't understand it because then there's no incentive at all. So I think that oftentimes incentives may actually even vary within a division in terms of what you're incenting, whether you're incenting uh, quality of patient care, educational effort, clinical productivity. You might, you might even see within a large division, you might see some variation in terms of what those incentives are in terms of compensation. So I think the answer is that there's, there needs to be a lot of individual variation, um, and sometimes even within a particular division. But on the other hand, that needs to be understood and it needs to be transparent, particularly to the individuals that it impacts. I just wanted to emphasize two great important points that Craig and Arnie made. So first of all, I think that when you roll out an incentive plan and a program where there's targets, whatever the target is, what the biggest mistake that most people do is that that's the only focus that is in the minds of both the faculty hearing about this incentive and you. And the reality is that incentive programs, if they're designed properly, the end result is that every individual like Craig mentioned is going to be able to achieve the goal. You never want to have any incentive put forward in front of anyone where it will be impossible for them to reach that goal and benefit from the incentive. When we rolled out, and we were one of the first departments to ever roll out an incentive-based uh, compensation plan, the, the whole purpose of it was for people to be successful. But before that is we wanted to understand where we were leaving money on the table, where faculty were doing work for which we were not getting reimbursed. Arnie talked about understanding the metrics and understanding how to do your ENM codes and understanding how to do your documentation. So that is one example of hundreds that I could give you where when you roll out an incentive plan in the proper way, you find out what the limitations are to the faculty member or the team meeting that goal of that incentive? Do you have enough clinic staff to make the throughput good? Are, are your check-in approaches in the clinic effective? Did we re get reimbursement for the cases you saw in the emergency room, off-site, in the psych unit? And when we rolled out our plan, what we found is that we had hundreds of thousands of dollars that we weren't even submitting a bill for. So I think that's a really important part. Uh, Arnie's comment about, you know, making sure faculty understand how to get their maximum revenue and Craig's point about creating an incentive that someone can actually attain. You know, if you don't do these two things, you don't find where that money is on the table. And I will tell you that faculty are extraordinarily good at telling you what the limitations are in them being able to be effective. 
And the final comment I would make is that if you're not rolling out a salary plan in that manner with that kind of philosophy, what you will invariably hear is, it doesn't matter how many patients I see, you're just losing money on me. And that is not true. We have fixed costs in every clinical setting, MAs, the nurses, the, you know, whatever support team is part of it. Those costs are fixed. We have to pay for those individuals, no matter what amount of revenue you do or you don't generate. So I think it's, it's really part of getting back to helping people to understand just how we can all work better to maximize the revenue, which is the source that pays for all of our academic goals and program development. Those are great points. One thing I just thought I would add is that we've been talking about RVUs. There are specialties we all know that a hospitalist, for example, that works at night, you know, the, the NICU doctor who's taking call at night. So, you know, being really thoughtful, not all, all productivity can be measured with RVUs. And so it's really important to understand the practice model uh, and how, how you can determine productivity outside of, of, of RVUs. And that's particularly important in capitated uh, incapitated systems, because, you know, the general pediatrician in your, your department sees many patients, but doesn't generate many RVUs. And if you just base it on RVUs and distributing a capitated uh, pot of money, they really lose out. Or if you do it on number of patients, the NICU doctor misses out. So it's a, it's more, it's more complicated measuring productivity than just RVUs, but again, transparency and helping people understand uh, how you're, how you're doing that is really important. What are people's thoughts about uh, non-clinical productivity measurements? So for example, scholarship or quality improvement activity or, or, or education, uh, any thoughts as to how we can make sure that those activities are also acknowledged in the compensation model? Listening to my colleagues, one, it brought me back to my days as a division chief and then a chair, and then the big picture as a president. So I have following things. First of all, devil in the details, I fully agree with my colleagues, okay? So, you know, understanding the various sources, and I'll get to your question so I don't forget it of non-RVU uh, um, uh, compensation is understanding the full picture and the big picture is really important. You know, medicine is, is, is um, finger pointed at for being more of a business. And I think as pediatricians and physicians, perhaps to remind ourselves that we should be mission driven, although I know it was in the title, no mission, no margin, no mission that those things are linked to each other. So one is absolutely, it needs to be, what is the good that we're doing? And then get to the, you know, the, the bottom line, which is that of course you can't do anything if you are, don't have the resources to do it. But I did use as a chair, a, an actual model that the institution, and I, it just points to the fact that absolutely to answer your question, they have to be more than what are the dollars and cents, but the dollars and cents are important. So we use a CARTS methodology, which some of you have heard, which is clinical administration, research, teaching, and strategic. And strategic meant that these dollars came to this particular division, perhaps from an endowed chair, perhaps from something else, but it really focused on attention. I was lucky as a division director um, um, 
division chief to actually get an endowed chair a year after I assumed my responsibilities. And it was a strategic move to point to the importance of general academic pediatrics, which is what the chair had wanted to do. So I think that there are many ways to count ENM codes. Of course, lots of people undercode because they're afraid of overcoding and being audited, but it works in both ways. If you undercode, you're going to be audited as well. So knowing the details is important. We spend a lot of time looking at ERVUs, right? You guys remember ERVUs, can you quantitate teaching, et cetera? So I think our metrics have to be more specific to understand. So if there's a proceduralist, and Bob, I'm going to pick on you, right? Surgery as a procedure, right, driven um, uh, endeavor. But how did you get your patients? How did that patient come to you? I don't think we're capturing in a fair way how the institution functions as a whole and then grounding us in what we're doing. It's a mission to serve and to improve health. So yes, you should, you should take a look at grants. You should look at both NIH grants, which of course bring lots of indirects, and foundation grants and other grants that are teaching grants, which bring 8% of indirect as opposed to the 65, 70% indirects and not undervalue those. You should look at advocacy efforts, community-based efforts, and actually begin to calculate it, which I did for two years as a chair, that we actually went through every single division and looked at where your efforts were. And of course, you need to cross-subsidize. The NICUs run you know, financially often support the department, but there needs to be transparency in sharing those data, transparency in sharing what the compensations are, either in aggregate, um, and I think there'll be debate of whether you share actual individual compensation, but there needs to be that transparency so you can build as a team the success of that department, that division, the university, and the fact that we are here for a particular purpose and not be accused of being just a business, right? Because we're, we're much more than a business, although we have to run a good business. So I don't know, that's a whole lot of stuff. Uh, the AAMC has a fund flows publication, which is useful. And there are various models that are out there. So I think our fact, our division chiefs need to be literate in that. And I had my administrative meet with routinely with every single division to be able to share both the big picture and the details. So I think those kinds of things are really important throughout the process. And I think it's critical uh, to establish what the clinical FTE for each individual is, because that's what the data are based upon in terms of expected productivity. The counterpart to that is making sure that educational uh, work and uh, advocacy work, as Danielle mentioned, and uh, research time are quantified as well. And that expectation, expectations exist uh, for how much time is allocated for that. So I've seen institutions where everybody gets 20% academic time and does nothing with it. And that um, is unacceptable. Um, so <laughs> adjusting so-called academic time is, is critical based on productivity, just as it is for research time or clinical time. At one of my positions, we surveyed the faculty and asked them how much uh, incentive um, would they like to have 
everywhere from having their salary based 100% on RVUs, for example, uh, or none. And the surprising answer to me was 10%. People did not want to have their total effort based solely upon uh, clinical productivity. And I agree with that because I think that, um, as some have suggested, if it is totally based on clinical productivity, disincentivizes people to do the other aspects of their work well. So uh, the only way that all of that works, as everybody has said, is if the individual faculty member, but especially the division director, both understands and can explain uh, why uh, the percent effort is what it is and what the expectations are for each and every component of it. I'm glad you brought up the question about the percent of compensation that should be, uh, if you will, at risk or incentive derived. Um, you know, there's a book that that some of you may have read uh, by Daniel Pink called Drive, where he looks at the, the uh, psychological, social, economic literature and basically argues that incentives um, only work in the short term and that ultimately they can be potentially destructive to an organization's mission. So I was just going to say that I, I think from discussions with other medical schools, although I'm not sure if the data has actually been published, probably somewhere around total incentive pay on the average being between 10 and 12, 13 percent is probably about where most of the major research universities um, tend to tend to aggregate. Um, I, and I think you asked a really interesting question before, and I'd be interested to hear what others might even have to say about this, is what sort of incentives do they use for educational effort and educational excellence? And I, I think that's a difficult um, in, a, in a funds flow model to actually allocate dollars for educational effort incentives, although I have seen that done and be, be successful. I think more often what one sees is that more effort is... Um, Arnie had talked about more more actual effort of the FTE is allocated for those who show excellence in educational effort so that they have more time to actually put towards that towards that excellence. In answer to your initial question, you know, how do you perhaps um, demonstrate value to components of the work that generated the incentive? So one of the strategies that I think people can consider is to send the incentive funds as a pot back to the individual divisions and allow those divisions to tell you what it is they feel should be valued through the incentive payout. And when we did this, we made it clear that the plan that any division came up with had to be a plan that the faculty all agreed to. And that we had you know, a couple of little nuances that you, you had to give some incentive to those who had earned it. But if you had as a group things that you valued more than anything else or that they were things you wanted to strive to accomplish in any one year, yes, you could take that pot of money and, and divvy it out in that manner. And so we had unbelievably creative um, divisions that came up with a desires to hold back money so that they could invest in a program they wanted to develop, uh, distribute part, parts of the funds to all the staff within their group. Um, it was really, really um, almost a cohesive kind of team building effort that allowed the individuals to show us what they valued as a group. And in turn, we would share with the entire department how different divisions distributed 
you know, not the amounts of money, but what they distributed their funds flow to. And it was amazing to see the evolution that occurred within the department as divisions took on some of these exemplars in the subsequent years. They really liked what cardiology did with that program, or they really liked Hemonc giving a, an incentive payment to their staff. Um, so I think that there are ways to, to distribute funds to enable individuals to have some degree of um, you know, ownership over what they want to accomplish. And um, again, it can be team building and building in trust and um, building in a positive culture. Um, and I do agree with Arnie's comment about, you know, you never want an incentive, you know, I, I, the thought of 100% incentive driven salary is just absolutely ridiculous. I think 10 to 20% is very reasonable. Again, if the person, if the individuals can actually attain that goal. But the last comment I want to make is a number of us have used the word um, subsidize. And I really think that that word has to be eliminated. Um, I think we don't mean to say that, but we do because we talk about neonatology, you know, being one of the big money earners and transferring funds. But no individual wants to believe that they're being subsidized. The psychology division does not want to feel they're subsidized. The genetics division does not want to feel they're subsidized. The endocrinologists do not want to feel they're subsidized. And when we use words like this, we, we tend to send the message that what you, invariably we don't mean to, but what you do is not valued. And I don't think any discipline in medicine can exist independent of another discipline. And I think your comments, Bob, were really part of that, you know, a few minutes ago, you, you talked about the team and, and, and to me, that is, that is a really important part of, of the, the funds flow you develop and how you talk about it and how you communicate it. Your choice of words sends a message that invariably may not be what people will resonate to. So I would just throw that out, get rid of the word subsidized. Nobody's being subsidized. Everybody's important to the mission. Thanks. A lit of controversy should be inserted into our conversation. So I did use the word subsidized because it's used as in a fiscal term. I agree with Valerie. However, I think the reality is that we have not valued things equally. I'm a general academic pediatrician, and I can tell you that, in fact, the reality is that words do mean something, but actions speak louder than words. And so one of the things that I was going to say is that I think we should measure how well our various discussions around transparency, productivity, fairness, how healthy is our organization, and, and looking at that through asking our faculty, our students, our staff, of whether we are reflective of a healthy environment, okay? So if, and that means really evaluating that. And I think beyond the usual surveys that are out there, because those are sometimes give you a high level picture, but at, at, at the ground level, it doesn't give you what you want to know. So I think we should be rigorous with ourselves that when we say funds flow, when we say that we are going to share, maybe it's a better word, Valerie, that we are going to share because we have different contributions, okay? then I think we need to evaluate whether those systems are actually delivering on that in the culture. Um, yes, we should look at inclusion, diversity, and all of those metrics, 
to say whether or not, you know, uh, uh, good words are actually measured by action and take a look at whether or not people are being compensated fairly for the work that they do, their contributions in teaching, in advocacy, in clinical outcomes, in research outcomes, all of that. It's, it's a tough business. And so let's make it a team sport where we support each other and um, not speak only to the words, but to the actions that are linked to those words in a way that we can evaluate ourselves as to, and it's iterative, just like quality improvement has told us, it's an iterative process. We'll get it wrong many times, as long as we know what the direction is. So I think this is a great conversation, Bob. And um, I think we, we're not solving the world's problems, but we are beginning to think about you know, how critical we are of each other, but whether or not we're focusing on the right metrics and on the right processes to get to fairness. Uh, Wesley, as, as someone who's been a consultant in academic pediatric medicine for years, I just wondered if you had any any closing thoughts, uh, observations, things that maybe you've seen work really well at other institutions? So thank you, Bob. Uh, and I, I want to thank the council for this uh really awesome conversation because we deal with it daily. Uh, compensation incentive drives recruitment and ultimately retention. And that, that would be the value I would, I would offer to the group and to leaders in academic pediatrics is, you know, in incentive programs in uh, specialties like development on behavioral pediatrics and endocrinology and, uh, you know, rheumatology, it's good to have, but if people can't achieve them, it just it demotivates people. Um, it makes them uh, targets of acquisitions by your competitors. Um, and so I'm I'm more profoundly struck by the longer term impacts. I, I think ultimately it also, um, you know, as as we think about our shortages and having 16 nephrologists graduate last year um, or 18. Um, you know, how, how are our incentive programs and the way we talk about them impacting people even wanting to become a pediatric fill-in-the-blank specialist? And so we're seeing a lot of clients move to straight salary, really competitive straight salaries that allow them to compete with private practice dollars. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a key thing. Um, and that the incentive, if you have a competitive salary as a developmental behavioral pediatrician and you have the opportunity to, to earn an extra 10000 at the end of the year, if your division accomplishes its goals, then it creates synergy with the group of physicians in that division. It becomes less of an individualized thing that leaves people on islands. And so I think it also has a positive cultural impact to the groups that we work with um, as well. And so I those are a, a few incentives that that we see. And, and again, as we look at this new generation of physician coming out that's looking for stability, because we've we've gotten carried away with RVUs and these tiered incentives. If you've been here four years, you can get this. If you've been here 20 years, you can get this. But our, our young rheumatologists are doing exactly the same job as our senior rheumatologists, as an example, on a day-to-day -day basis. And you know, long-term disparity and lack of equity creates uh, those type of issues. For the example I would give of an incentive and how it affects a division would be the battle you see between 
hospitals and departments and like a rheumatology division as to who owns infusion. Subspecialists may get tired of hearing about the neonatologist, right? That they're covering everybody's shortfall and things like that. And so I, I have seen where, yes, everybody wants infusion revenue, but I also have seen really positive impacts on culture and retention when when you allow divisions that have very little opportunity to drive incentive uh, participate in things like that, like infusion revenue, and it incentivizes them to grow programs regionally and things like that versus if it's all owned by somebody else and they don't participate in that. So I think that's one other aspect of incentive that uh, does have an impact on RVUs, but uh, probably a bigger impact on culture. The point that I don't think we emphasize, and this could be controversial, but I've never used incentives to get people to their market salary. I think incentives are used to get people above and beyond what should, for sure, every faculty member, getting back to Danielle's point, should be paid a market-based equitable salary. If the incentives are meant to go above and beyond, and I'm not sure we made that point clear. But I think if you're going to design a salary plan where your entire salary or a good hunk of your salary is dependent upon you generating productivity, you are going to have a disaster on your hands yeah. and you will have a short term as a chair. And more importantly, you'll do devastating de You'll have a devastating impact in the culture of your department. So I, I'm not sure, Bob, that we've emphasized that enough incentives really are meant to go above and beyond where you're already paying people 75%, 80%, you know, whatever you're allowed to do in your market uh, rates. Um, and of course, based on their position, assistant, associate, full professor. Um, but incentives are meant to be something that, you know, if you want to try and achieve that, then it's there for you. I just want to thank who, who just mentioned the word ethics. That's really important. We are criticized in medicine for not attending to the whole child and the mental health concerns of families. One, because we didn't have the training with respect to that, which I think we've tackled in the last decade or more. But the other is because, in fact, it would take time to actually understand the emotional health of a child or a family, and therefore we've not integrated it into our primary care settings or our specialty settings. And I think this is where um, how we structure uh, processes and what we pay for really drives which who's wagging the dog, okay, in terms of that. And so I think um, inserting the word ethical behavior as clinicians that we are attending to the needs of families is really important. And then how we train ourselves to do that in a team fashion, which means that it's going to be beyond the physician. It's going to be a collaborative model of care that allows us to achieve that and then gets complicated. And I want to echo base salary, a salary that is fair compensation and that I like the idea, straight, straight salary. And then take a look at some of the other metrics. So, well, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate every, everyone's thoughts. As uh, as Danielle mentioned, uh, I I heard a hospital financial person quip one time that uh, without a margin, so no margin, no mission, and that's an unfortunate reality at times. That uh, we do have to pay attention to the business of medicine in order to fulfill our mission. 
Um, I think it's been a great conversation today and, and uh, lots more to follow. Thank you all very much.